Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 3. We're in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. This passage is very uh, common, or we read it so often. Uh, verse 18 in the New American Standard says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as it is fitting to the Lord. And then it, it kind of unpacks from there. There are these bullet commands that, that either uh, we've heard it, we've heard it, or we resist to it. And so I decided today that instead of reading out the New American Standard, I'm going to read from the Phillips translation, which is a uh, sort of a paraphrase. And it, it opens up the text. I think it, they, he does a great job in his translation of the original text, yet kind of piecing it together in a way that makes it a little more understanding or sheds new light on the passage. So I'm going to read from the Phillips translation, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, adapt yourselves to your husbands, that your marriage may be a Christian unity. Husbands, be sure you give your wives much love and sympathy. Don't let bitterness or resentment spoil your marriage. As for you, children, your duty is to obey your parents. For at your age, this is one of the best things you can do to show your love for God. Fathers, don't overcorrect your children or they will grow up feeling inferior and frustrated. Slaves, your job is to obey your masters, not with the idea of currying favor, but as a sincere expression of your devotion to God. Whatever you do, put your whole heart and soul into it as into work done for God, and not merely for men, knowing that your real reward, a heavenly one, will come from God since you are actually employed by Christ and not just by your earthly master. But the wicked man will be punished for his misdeeds, and naturally no distinction will be made between master and man. Remember then, you employers, that your responsibility is to be fair and just toward those whom you employ, never forgetting that you yourselves have a heavenly employer. And Father, I pray that you would help us as we work our way through this text today. Lord, may you adjust our hearts uh, to hear what it is that you have to say to us. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So this is a passage. Like whenever I come to this, it's like, oh, there's this. As a pastor, when you start talking about what does the Bible say about families and marriage, there's this bit of resistance. And so sometimes from the pulpit or teachers, they become to become very aggressive, like they have to defend or, or protect or, or kind of explain what the Bible says, um, or they come with an axe to sort of grind, like they have a sort of pet peeve, and th- this is their, their spot to grind it. And I want to say that I have no axe to grind, and I don't come to this passage um, really wanting to like lecture down to anybody here. I come to this passage um, as, as, as a sinner, as one who has no baseline. I wasn't raised in the church. Uh, my parents, if you take my biological parents and my mom, who is my ex-stepmother, she's my ex-stepmom, who has become my mom, um, between my three sort of parents, there's probably about nine divorces there. And I'm not even coming to this passage. If you have divorced, there's so much, there's God's grace there. We've all made mistakes. I simply am sharing my background. I am um, I have so many kind of step-parents and ex-in-laws, and it's very complex, especially when you start trying to explain to my kids, like, who's grandma and grandpa and who's, who's what? And so it can be very difficult. I was raised very much according to the world, uh, worldly principles. As I graduated high school and joined the Navy, the, the, the U.S. Navy SEAL teams are not what, uh, a breeding ground for uh, biblical Christian parenthood or, or being a husband. And so really, I, I feel inept in this subject in many respects. And as I came to Christ and I started looking at my surroundings and my peers and my family, I started to realize that the, the path I was on and the, the road that I would end up going down. And I really wanted to know, what does the Bible say? Like, how in the world am I going to navigate marriage and being a dad? This what I really wanted to do. And right now I'm 10 years into my marriage, six years into being a dad. Hopefully, prayerfully, I have many more years ahead of me than I have behind me. 
And so I'm learning. And so I come to this as a student. And really, as I wrestle through this, I feel like this is me and God. And you guys are kind of like being let in. Now, some of us might shut down right away and say, oh, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not married yet. I don't have family yet. And there is the workplace environment that comes into this text. But really, for all of us who are Christians, whether you're widowed, whether you're a widower, whether you have never been married, whether you're single, I, I believe that this all fits together. It's all for us that God wants us to understand his plan for the family in the Christian life. Um, this week, Bobby Workman came up to me during VBS. She showed up. She's, she's donating under the playground. She's going to, she's paying to have like artificial grass, like the artificial grass that looks like real grass put in. It's a significant cost. And, and, um, she came in here as one of the guys came and did the bid and with tears in her eyes, she looked at me and she said, this, this church isn't a congregation. And I'm like, uh-oh, what do you mean? She's like, this is a family. She's like, I've never been so loved on, like, through, like, losing my husband and, and seeing how everybody's kind of come around me and loved on me that I want to kind of give back to my, to my family. And I received an, uh, an insurance claim, and I'm, she's basically giving the majority of it away. And, and she's like, this is a family. And it, it incur- like, just like for me, like I didn't literally cry, but there's no, like I could have totally done that if she caught me at the right moment. But it just like in my heart, it's like, no, that's what a church is. And so for all of us to understand what's the significance of marriage and, and up here, the Bible verses are totally different. I'm not going in sort of any sort of order up there. Um, I've taken the significant passages dealing with marriage and family and i've kind of placed them up there so you can write them down and do your research i will i'm going to reference a lot of stuff like that the bible says but i may not actually give you like the where it came from but one of the things that i see in scripture in titus it makes it very clear that that even like the older people are to instill in the younger people what god thinks it's like we have this role in a in a christian community to help each other navigate these waters I probably could have, like, I'm so torn on this text. Like, should I just do the husbands and wives, then do a week on parenting, and then do a week on, on the workplace environment? But I'm so OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder. We have this whole, like, kid-coming thing that the baby's going to show up. Like, Anna's like, well, I'm going to try to work towards your preaching calendar. I'm like, okay, well, then my goal is to finish next Sunday. Because the baby's not due till the following Sunday. So I'm like, well, if I break this up, no, I got to finish so that we can then, like, move on. And so I'm kind of going to rush, and I'm kind of hoping to give more of an overview of, of what the Bible says on, on family life and work environment. Um, as we start, marriage is one of those difficult things. I've heard a bunch of funny lines Often at weddings, when I perform a ceremony, I'll use a line, you know, they say love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. Paul, who was Paul, who is married and likely a widower, the, the apostle Paul, he writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 28. Listen to what he says. He says, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. Like he says, if you get like it's totally okay to get married, and he says most people should because of the desires that God has given us. But he's like, but I'm a single man, and man, if you get married, you're going to have all kind of issues, and it's difficult, and it's hard, and and especially when we come to this text, when we come to this wives submit your husbands. I did a, a cowboy wedding a couple weeks ago. It was set to, during the Victorian era the mid-1800s, and they asked if I could use a script that would be uh, original to that text. And I said, you guys, like they weren't Christians. And I said, you know, you, know, you I don't think you guys are believers. And you understand that a, that a, a Christian text from that time is going to be pretty bold and direct. And they said, no, no, the more authentic, the better. I'm like, all right, awesome. 
And the opening line of like asking them if there's anything that they haven't confessed to each other that will be revealed on the dreadful day of judgment. Everybody laughed. I'm like, there's nothing to laugh about with that. But then when it's, you know, but ye shall submit to him. That got a lot of like elbows from the guys and, and people coming to feel like, I really like that part. I, re- I really like that part. And so when we read that text, we think of, maybe you don't know him, and maybe I shouldn't even quote him, but old Shel Silverstein, he's a poet, a writer, wrote children's books. He wrote a f- lot of funny Christian songs. He wrote this song, and this is what we think of when we hear this verse. The man attached to that verse says, put another log on the fire, cook me up some bacon and some beans, and go out to the car and change the tire, wash my socks and sew my old blue jeans. Come on, baby, you can fill my pipe and then go fetch my slippers and boil me up another pot of tea. Then put another log on the fire, babe, and come tell me why you're leaving me. (laughs) Now, don't I let you wash the car on Sunday? And don't I warn you when you're getting fat? And ain't I going to take you fishing someday? Well, a man can't love a woman more than that. And so when we see this verse... Women submit to your husbands. We get this in our culture that that's the picture of the man that we're talking about. And it has been used out of context. There are plenty of men. I've seen them that that know nothing of the Bible, but they'll take that one verse. When we come to this setting in Colossians, it's important to remember the context. If we go up to verse 12, we see so. As you who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. It goes on about this new life in Christ. Verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Verse 16 to in verse 17, right before where we open up this section is whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In Ephesians, the, the sort of the companion letter to Colossians, Paul opens up before he gets into marriage, let all of you submit yourselves to Christ. The Christian life is marked by submission. As we end this passage, where we're going to pick up next week, in verse 2, the very first thing, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. Like this, the, the bookends to this passage are all about the new life in Christ. And we'll have plenty of time to talk about the marriage, but the image that we have on husbands dealing with submit yourselves to your husband is not what the scripture kind of, it's not the picture that the scripture paints. There's a lot of argument over, even in Christian circles, is this, this was set during this era and their culture was different than our culture. It doesn't apply to us because they were so different then. Well, there's truth to that, but really that's not a road that you really truly want to go down. During this culture, the the husband had ultimate authority. His wife was viewed as a piece of property so much to where he could, under Roman law, he could have her executed for whatever meaningless reasons. She was viewed as like a, like a, a piece of property or a vehicle. It, there, there, was, there was no rights given to her. And so this is radically distinct from the culture that they were set in. And Paul and Timothy, when he starts reasoning over this, he reasons from creation. He he goes back to Genesis and he says that the woman was created to be the helpmate for the man, that in their companionship, that this is how God created it. But sin has entered the world and sin has distorted so much of what we know. And as we come into this section, I like what Phillips says uh, you, you know, in the in the New American Standards, wives be subject to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. But Philip says, wives, adapt yourselves to to your husbands so that your marriage may be in Christian unity. And as I look at all of these passages sort of listed here, a, a number of things sort of bubble to the surface. There's like four. When I look at the guys, like eight things bubble up, like there's a whole laundry list for the guys. For the girls, I see four, which really could only be three. And the first is this word submission or to submit. It literally is a military term, uh, meaning subordination, sort of like the rank structure. It, it would be used for a bond slave 
one who chose to enter into servanthood with their master, that they would subject themselves to their master's authority. Everybody in our culture that I know chose your spouse. The person you marry to is by your choice. You're all hunky-dory over one another. And what this, what this word, I think, means is it's this idea of subjection that you would come under your husband's authority, that you would open up space to allow him to lead the family, understanding the role that God has called him to, that you would support your husband as he does all of his responsibilities, which we can have a we can have a debate over which one carries more, 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 more stress. But so often when I look at marriages in our culture, what I see is this battle for who's in charge. And, you, you know, the whole idea of a 50-50 partnership. It's like, man, that's like when, when you have companies battling for 50-50 partnership, what happens is the, the partnership folds. This has nothing to do with equality. Or how they're viewed amongst God. It's understanding, no, God's called one to lead. In marriages, if I was doing your marriage ceremony, I often will re- relate this to a 51-49%. Like understanding that at the end of the day, the man's going to give account for how he led his family. Ephesians, as Paul wraps up that section dealing with where he says to submit to the wife once, but he tells the husband to love about three times. <laughs> He really, guys can be a little, that sounds like our heads. There's a whole lot more instruction towards the men than there is towards the women. At the end of it, instead of the word submit, he puts the word respect. And I found it interesting. You can't make universal statements, but general statements. In my dealing with couples that are having a hard time, so often the woman wants to be loved by the husband. And, And that means... That means that that means something different for every woman. I, I'm like trying, you know, my wife came with an owner's manual, but it was a blank book. So I'm writing it. So I'm learning like it's like this journal. OK, what, what Anna for me, loving her, that means, OK, we just need to like I need to put down my cell phone. I need to give her time alone and I just need to let her talk and I need to listen and I need to communicate with her. Well, this is my wife. So I've had to learn, like, what does loving my wife look like? That book, uh, I, I never read it. I read the back of it or the introduction. So I know all about it. <laughs> love languages, you know, they, they describe four different love languages. The one thing I did get from it, which I think is so true, is it describes four different ways that people love, like giving, serving, uh, other ones. I don't, I don't know what they really were. But I'm like a gift. Like I like the way I show. I like to serve. I like to do stuff. But so often, whatever your love language is, that's what you like to share. But often, your spouse has a total different love language, and so learning how to to love them the way that they want to be loved, not the way that you would want to be loved if you were them. So this idea of respect that the spouse would respect her husband, and now men. I mean, love is great. We do want to be loved. But what I found from most men is they want to be respected. Like I wanted to look up this word. It slipped my mind in my notes because Rick teased me. He's like, why are you writing down notes during your... You either got it or you don't have it. And I don't got it right now because now my cell phone's over there and Wikipedia lies there. So to Google up respect. But the, the idea of that you honor, cherish, that you value them as a, as a, as a man who leads. Oh, like men love this. And in this setting, I've noticed that as we go from wives to husbands and then we go children to men, I don't think that that's accidental. Like in both times, if these were reversed the other way, I think the men could read their part, move on, and then leave with a harshness. But from this passage, it kind of it, it flips to where the men is kind of brought up sideways. And, and the reason I say this now is the idea of respect. If men led and loved like the scripture scriptures encouraged them to do so you would have no problems with your wife's respecting and following your lead the last thing i see on women is from peter there's this emphasis on on focusing on your 
inward attitude. Not braiding your hair. Now, I don't think braiding your hair, I think that was a cultural thing. Like, I think braids are okay. But, like, the idea is, hey, focus on your inside. Focus on, on really walking with God and letting God cultivate your heart and, 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 and you know, changing you from the inside so that it would, um, that your love for your husband will grow stronger. And some of us, now that I'm thinking of First Peter, would say, well, my husband's not a believer. My husband's not a believer, so this doesn't apply to me. I can't do this. This is for, for those in the Christian home. But what I see in 1 Corinthians 7 and in Peter, in both those cases, that to the wives, and really on both sides, that marriage, that it's a commitment. Like, even if you made your vows outside and not and apart from God, like if you got married by Elvis in Las Vegas, which deep down I'm jealous of you, because I think that would be really cool, Anna wouldn't go for it. Her dad wasn't either for it. But that's another issue. Is what I see from Scripture is that once those vows have been made, once marriages happen, regardless if you're not equally yoked, and as far as God's concerned, that you've made a covenant before him, and, and there's commitment that's required there. And Peter Peter's case is like, if your husband's not a believer, so live your lives in a way that your husband would see the gospel, the grace of God manifested in your life, that he might be one for salvation. I could spend a lot of time here, but I'm rushing through. So if you're mad with me already, it's okay, because we're going to move on to the husbands. <laughs> and maybe I'll spend more time here because, it, it, like for me, it, it, it resonates with me. Philip says, be, husbands, be sure to give your wives much love and sympathy. Don't let bitterness or resentment spoil your marriage. Now, the word love in the Greek, this is, this is not eros, which is erotic sort of love, or phileo, which is a brotherly sort of love that you would experience on a sports team. But it's agape love, which is this commitment to, to serve and to function in the person's best interest, not your own, that there's this commitment there. It's not... It's not an emotional sort of thing. It's, a, it, 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 it's committing to do what's best for the person, for them in the great picture. I see throughout all these scriptures that the husband's to shepherd his family, that he's the, the spiritual leader, that he's supposed to, to lead them in spiritual matters, that he's to be praying with them, reading their Bible, like just worshiping as a family. But Christianity is not just about going to church on Sundays. It's about worshiping God every single day and leading your family. And that it doesn't look the same in every family. We're to provide as husbands for our family. That in, in, in Timothy, it says that those who are of the household of faith, or, or that's my word, but those who are believers and they don't provide for their families, they're worse than infidels or non-believers. Maybe it doesn't say infidels, but it's, it's wrong era. Gentiles. But there's this, there's this strong demand on the family that you're to care, the husband that you're to care and provide for your family with sensitivity and understanding that your wife is different than you. You didn't marry one of your buddies. This is difficult. Like I can't tell you how many times, you know, like that, I've, I'm 10 years into marriage. And if my wife is crying and she's pregnant, and so there's more tears associated with pregnancy, my first reaction is like, what's wrong? What do I have to do to fix it? I've learned to like, everything's going to be okay. Do you need to talk? I'll just listen. But there's differences and we don't think the same. Like I love, it. well, it's a secular talk show, Dennis Prager. He's a Jewish guy. But once a week he has the, the, the woman and the female male hour where he examines the differences sort of from a scientific perspective. And he has people call. It's the funniest thing hearing people like, you know, because over radio, their guards are down and they start sharing about the differences. And there's there's differences. And so from a, what I see in the scripture towards the men is we're told you need to be sensitive. You need to you need to nurture your wife and care for her. You need to honor her as a and Peter. It, it, you need to honor her. What it says is fascinating as a fellow recipient of grace of life. 
that this isn't like you're over her, that you're more special. You have different roles, but you're equal before God. You each have inherited this grace of life. And so you need to cherish her. And it says no harshness. In this passage in verse 19, it says, do not be embittered against them. It's literally, it's like bitter water. Now, I do have the Euro cup on my brain. Andre, and I, it's for those, since you're all Americans and none of you care about soccer, football, the real football, um, it's bigger than the Super Bowl. The European Cup Super Bowl is happening today, and I don't want to know, I'm watching it time delayed. It's Spain and Italy. And so Andre and I have been going back, and he's like, man, I heard a pastor last week talk about being compassionate. And I'm like, yeah, you're going to have to pray for me to be compassionate for to you when Spain, you know, whoops up on Italy. And but in Italy, when I visited there, the water is like horrible. Like some of you might like it, but it's like the bubbly water. Like you have to go out of your way to find regular water without bubbles. And I remember he's hauling me around Florence. It was hot. And all I had was the bubbly water. And I was just dying of thirst. And I'm like, I got to get the fluid in. This is terrible. And sometimes the husband's attitude, this harshness or bitterness towards your wife or family and how you treat them is like bitter water that you just can't choke down. And I think that there's, there's warning because of as we lead, there's propensity for sin and, and struggles in this area because it's hard to lead in this sort of capacity. As a SEAL instructor, the CEO would always pull us aside. There's a joke amongst SEAL instructors that says we like to make the SEAL training as hard as the, the hardest five minutes that we had in our training. So like the very hardest five minutes of training that we had in the whole six months, we like to make that the standard. And the CEO would always come down. He says, hey, guys, look at the other side of your shirt. It says UDT SEAL and it says instructor. It's like, you guys are, it's okay to instruct. You guys don't have to be mean and brutal. We're like, oh, but our propensity is so to go there. And I think that this is why there's this warning to, to, to men. Like, as we lead our families, I think there's this propensity in our sinful nature not to do it with grace and love. Without harshness. And when there's harshness and when there's conflict, Peter tells us that your prayers are hindered. That when you with your wife aren't in harmony, that there's that there's your prayers are hindered, that God is concerned. One of the best things that I that Ann and I did on accident before we were married, we there's a girl, Krista. And uh, I'm really excited she's gonna be here in September to kind of share a little bit with us. But she was a missionary heading to the Middle East. She had she, she knows Arabic. She's like studied Islam like at extensive levels. She spent five years in UAE, United Arab Emirates. But the conditions got so harsh on her that she needed to, to transition fields. And she ended up going to Lyon, France, where the highest population of Muslims exist. And so she's there reaching Muslims. And when we met her as she was about to head out the door, we said, yeah, we'll commit to, to, to giving you money. And we'll commit to praying for you every single day as a couple. Now, Anne and I weren't married yet. We still were in the uh, love is blind phase. But we committed to praying for Krista every single day. And I can't tell you how hard that was. That was the hardest thing we ever committed to. Because when you're angry about something, the last thing you want to do is to pray, let alone pray with that person. And so we would go and we're like, we got, we got to pray for Krista. So we've got to humble ourselves with each other and with God and make this right so we can pray. Right, the best thing we happened for the first five years of our marriage. The husband's behavior towards his wife should reflect the gospel to the children. Now, what's the gospel? The gospel is clearly this. Genesis tells us, in chapter 3, that sin entered the world. That by DNA, by our own actions, things changed. That we were separated from God. Death entered the world. 
we're, we're, if we're honest with ourselves, the nature of our heart is utterly wicked, prone not to the things of God. And God loved us so much that he made this promise that he would, he would reconcile our relationship with him. And so Jesus being God stepped out of heaven. He lived the perfect life. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it said that according to scriptures, he went to the cross. And that our sin was paid for on the cross. And that he was buried for three days and then he rose again and he appeared to all the people, all, all, a number of people, upwards of 600 people. And so the gospel is that truth that God died for you. And in faith, you put your hope in him. And you've received his love. And then it bubbles out in your life. And so our marriages should reflect this grace of God. As we lead our kids, it should reflect God's grace, his love, his mercy towards us. Recently, I began reading this book, A Grief Observed. I'm, I'm like a few pages into it. I came to know this book. It's written by C.S. Lewis. It was not written for the intention of being published as a book. C.S. Lewis's wife died of cancer. And he journaled. He's a writer. So he's journaling his experience and his pain and his agony of, of grieving over his spouse's loss. It was not intended for public consumption. He wrote it 50 years ago, and his son published it after his death 20 years ago. And in ministering with this SWAT officer who, whose wife was tragically killed on a tractor, he started telling me about this book. And so I'm like, i got to get this book to start reading it. And I started reading it. Like, I'm just in the introduction, and I'm like, like not, not crying, but my heart is just... Breaking over the spouse who's lost their their significant other, and and remorse and and wishing they could have rewind the tape and change it. And it's a powerful book because it's reminding me that that as my life unfolds, and in the introduction it says that when you make these vows, it's clear one of you will die before the other one. And you don't understand that then, but you under, obviously as you get near the end, it gets clearer and clearer. And so the whole, like I'm reading this going, man, I, like the time that I have on this earth is so short. And I want to honor God, that I want to bring glory to him through my marriage. And our time together is critical, spending time with your spouse in a culture of busyness. Like we neglect spending time with one another and cultivating the friendship in Bible college, there was this guy, Sam. He was a missionary to Brazil. I was a brand new Christian. He was my first Bible college class. He would make us stand at every class and sing a hymn, with, with, which was way out of my comfort zone. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He'd have his little tie on, cutest little old man. Like, I loved the guy. When we finished the class, he bought us Krispy Kreme donuts and orange juice to have a little party. Like I felt like I was back in kindergarten. So we sang "Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, and then we had our, our, our donuts. And he started sharing with us after 60 years of marriage that he's like, you know, marriage is really isn't, it's not about eros. It really is about companionship. And the older I get, this cultivating this companionship is, is a sweet thing. For, and it was just beautiful. And so much of marriage is about building companionship. So moving on from husbands. You guys are awfully quiet today. It says, as for you children, your duty is to obey your parents. For at your age, this is the, one of the best things you can do to show your love for God. This is a crazy thought to me. See, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, and I don't know what's cultivated in Christian homes. But my understanding during childhood, like I don't know at what point the thought came. Maybe third grade is when really it started cultivating. But from third grade, it's like, man, I just can't wait till I'm 18. I can get out of this place. That I can get freedom. That I can do whatever I want. That I, they're here to like feed me, take care of me, and then I can shoot out and do my own thing. But from a biblical perspective, the more I read about this 
from children that this idea, if you're a child in a home, if you're under your parents' authority and living at the house, that God very much cares about the role you play within your family. Radical. Like, I can't imagine if I could rewind the tape and redo my life from, from like, say, 10 years old till 18 when I joined the Navy. How much different would my house look if I thought, man, God really cares about how I serve and how I function as a child within this home. How can I honor my parents and live for them and bring glory to him? And in this, there's something interesting. That the word obey here, that this idea is very much different than the one to the spouse. The spouse throughout the scriptures is used as this this almost this decision that's made to, to understand the rules that God's laid out that you are going to submit yourself um, under the leadership of your husband as would a, a bond slave do to his master. But the word obey for kids is a different word altogether. And it literally means to, to listen, to attend to, that you would hear what your parents are saying, which, which I know there's a lot of parents that would, oh man, if my kids would just listen to me. Your parents are your ally. And it pleases the Lord when you listen to them. Now to fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. With this one, there's, there's great warning. That was the New American Standard. I love, I love what Phillips did here. Fathers, don't overcorrect your children or they will grow up feeling inferior and frustrated. Alistair Begg, dealing with this subject, he said something that was like, oh, kind of stop you in your tracks. He says, as a parent, you can't rewind the tape for a do-over, but the tape is going to be replayed over and over and over again in your child's mind. And he's like, it's horrifying. He's like, I don't know why God would be so gracious to us to allow us to become grandparents Because by the time we've become grandparents, we've learned so many lessons along the road. And then we kind of adjust our behavior. And I can see that with my kids and the things that I freak out about and the things that grandma freaks out about are two totally different things. It's like, oh, maybe grandma is like, there's some wisdom there. But the warnings to the fathers, and I believe that the mothers implied there, But as our frustration as a parent goes, because you're a sinful person, your children are sinful people, and you've been given this instruction to bring them up in the way of the Lord, like as you're living out your life, uh, you should manifest the things of God to them, that there's like this great warning sign towards dads over and over and over again, like beware, beware, because as the instruction to discipline is there, there's common pitfalls So in that, you need to love your children, care for them, nurture them. And as you're disciplining them to realize the uniqueness of each child. And it's been said that you need your Proverbs to to guide your children as they grow up. But you don't use every proverb to every child and you don't. Not every child gets the same Proverbs. And then if you use the wrong Proverbs on the wrong children, you're going to create great frustration. And even in my two kids, it's the, the personalities, like their uniqueness is overwhelming. I can't imagine what the third one's going to come out like. But like with Grace, the discipline she needs, she needs like very direct instruction and confrontation. Anna can't like, like at two, Grace almost broke her. Like I walked in and they're both like on the floor crying. I'm like, what happened? And Anna's like, I need help because she won't do this and just... Strong-willed, I'm like, oh, I love strong-willed. That's me. And so then I took over, and I'm like, man, after you know being a SEAL instructor for five years, she almost broke me. But I held strong because I'm like, if I don't like win this battle now, I got, I can't imagine battling her at 14. <laughs> and so, but now with Elizabeth, if I even just look at her with harshly, she like just breaks into tears and and it's so like sensitive and she wilts so quickly if you even and so i don't know how to handle i'm like but that's so anna 
And Anna's like, you can't let her get away with that. I'm like, I just, but look at her. She's like crying and, you know, and so, so then I'll often call Anna for backup with Elizabeth because it's like, I don't, I do much better with the, I want a war. I'm like, okay, let's, we can war. We can do this. Of course, in grace. There's this idea of shepherding our children that they're, that when they come, and if you're not a parent, you'll never be prepared to be a parent. Never forget, maybe it's fresh because we have this other child coming. But like when they let us take Grace home, it's like, what are they thinking? Like we drove away and she's in the back seat and it's kind of like, huh, there's nobody to pass the kid off to. Like when you hold other people's kids and they start crying and stuff's not going right, you go, here you go. Johnny's not happy with me anymore. So see you later. But when it's yours, it's like, I don't know. what I always, up to this stage of my life, handed them off. And then, But they, they are little people that grow into people. And I remember taking Grace home from, from, from the birth center, thinking, I don't even know this person. And then it stays in her life. But now that she's six, when I look back to like pictures of six months, it's like, oh, I know that kid. That's Grace. And like, oh, now I know what that little thing's going to turn into. And as we shepherd our children, it's, it's daunting. The verse that keeps coming to mind is this description of Jesus, you know, the God child. No sin. Perfect. Yet we see this picture of maturing in his life in Luke 2.52, the very last verse of Luke chapter 2. It says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And so as a parent, that, that these kids that I'm borrowing, they're not mine. Like the most recent tools I borrowed for from Rick Restivo right here, trying to remodel for my, you know, my dad's little suite that he's coming into. He loaned me a tile saw and a chop saw. And it's like, okay, we got to take good care of this thing. Because if I break it, like I got to pay for a new one. And, and I've got his tile saw and I'm going to Home Depot on all these trips and I'm seeing, oh man, tile saws are like 400 bucks. So I'm like telling my brother-in-law who's using it, I'm like, be careful with that thing because I don't want to have to buy a new chop saw. It's not mine. So treat it like it, you know, treat it real good. Our kids aren't ours. They're God's. We've been entrusted with them, which is, you know, it's, it's quite scary. Because they're little people, and, and here Jesus, as he's increasing in wisdom and stature, yet he was without sin. And I see that story when he stays at the temple, his parents are gone for three days, and they're trying to find him. And they go to him, and Jesus, where were you? How could you do to us? How could you do this to us? And a great lesson there that not all, re- not all frustration that you have on their actions is necessarily rebellion. Like, immaturity is not rebellion. And there's a great debate. Was he wrong or were the parents wrong? I don't know. Like, obviously, he wasn't wrong. But he might have, like, let them know, you know, at 12, like, hey, mom, dad, I'm going to kind of, I got, I, I have the father's business to take care of, so I'm going to be, like, arguing with all the, the great theologians of our day. So go on. I'll catch up. I'll be good. I know all things. It'll be okay. But, but God, as he's placed our children into our laps, like, like you're the only one that can invest in them. And so there's great caution. And, it, and back to chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. Like, great prayer. Because in your frustration, we need to be consistent. We need to cater to, like, the uniqueness of our children. But the caution is, is that that we can we can cause them deep-seated frustration, inferiorness. All of us who have parents, there's a little bit of like, oh man, my parents did this to me. And and I don't want to, you know, for me with my children, I don't want to cause the same sort of like frustrations. And it's difficult because we're not perfect. But one of the best things I've learned as a dad, and I would hope if you're a dad, two words, I'm sorry are powerful. Like you can go to your children and say, you know what, I'm really sorry. I blew it there. I was scared. I made a mistake. I overreacted. And I apologize. And see, you're exercising 
law within grace that, that you're, you understand that you're under God's authority and that it's his great graciousness towards us helps us to be gracious to them. Now to the workplace. I found it funny that in verse 22, the literal word is slaves. Now Phillips, when he gets down to chapter 4, verse 1, in the masters, he says employers. But he doesn't go in verse 22 and say employees. Some of us in our workplace would say slaves works fine. <laughs> but slaves, we under, like with American history and our culture, for us, slavery means something kind of entirely different than biblical times. This, a lot of slaves, were, most slaves were slaves by choice. It was their, their place of employment. Over half the population were slaves. That There was freedom within this bond servant. And it says that your job is to obey your masters, not with the idea of currying favor, but as a sincere expression of your devotion to God. Whatever you do, put on the, your whole heart and soul into it as into work done for God and not merely for men, knowing that your real reward, a heavenly one, will come from God since you are actually employed by Christ and not just by your earthly master. But the wicked man will be punished for his misdeeds. And naturally, no distinction will be made between master and man. We, we recently moved. We're super blessed. We, like, love our new house. But before we even knew the option of, like, buying a new house was, on the t- like, was an option, I was like, well, maybe we can expand. Like, we got to do something. Like, a boy's on the way. How are we going to, like, make room for this? And I called one of my buddies from high school. Just that he's a, he's in construction. I talked to a bunch of my construction guys, but then this guy's a Christian guy. I'm like, now what? Now how do you handle like remodels or adding on a room? And his initial like, he's like, oh, you want to add a like a you know 200 square feet to your house? He's like, that'd be like twenty thousand dollars. I'm like, okay, that's off the table. I'm like, is there any way we can like reduce the cost? And he starts saying, oh, yeah, if you have friends, you can kind of like, you, if you know people and you can kind of get them to do the work. But in his talk, he said, don't hire Christians. And I'm like, brother, you're a Christian. And he's like, why? That sounds harsh. But don't hire people just because they're Christians. It's burned me so many times. I think, oh, they're a Christian. I'm going to hire them. And then they are, do horrible work and it ends up costing me way more money. He's like, now if they're Christians and they do good work, hire them. That's great. But in, in, when he said it, I'm like, man, that is such not the biblical instruction for, for us, how we work and how we, how we live out our jobs. That, that Paul makes it very clear that God views our vocation, whether it's in the home, taking care of children, whether you're in, in the marketplace, whatever, wherever your vocation is, like whoever your boss is, that's not who you ultimately work for. You work for God. And so that leads us to like integrity of work that we we put in a full day's work, that we work hard and diligently knowing that God cares about how we work in our workplace. This is this is something that I think that people are like, oh, our vocation is is separate and distinct from my faith in God. But all of this, it all is together that God makes it clear. Verse 17 of chapter three, whatever you do. In word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So that as Christians, when we go to work, whatever it is that you do, we go with the idea of like, Lord, I want to please you. I don't want to cut corners. I want to work the full day, get the job done, do it with a, a way that is pleasing to you. We're told that you'll give an account for your work, which is kind of intimidating and there's a story i forget where it was somebody built maybe it was like building the sistine chapel or doing something and the guy who's a bricklayer i don't know how the story goes they're like man how do you do that work he's like i'm not just laying bricks i'm i'm doing this for the glory of god and like this idea of like that seeing the bigger picture i know rick's one of his favorite books that he kept threatening that he was going to buy for all everybody at bible studies practicing the presence of god Three years later, later, Pat Towsley bought a case for everybody just to mess with him. But it's like this idea of Brother Lawrence who 
is working, like doing dishes sort of thing. And just that his idea, like, well, I want to bring glory to God, like in this menial task. How do I experience his presence? And then when it gets to masters, remember then you employers that your responsibility is to be fair and just toward those whom you employ, never forgetting that you yourselves have a heavenly employer. As an employee that you want to be fair and just how you take care of your people, that you and if you're in a place where you actually have employees, that God has blessed you with a vocation where you kind of are head over things. He says, don't lose track that you are my underservant that ultimately you're going to give account for me. And when you realize what God's done for you, it changes how you treat others. And I love talking with people who actually work in an environment where they work for a Christian boss who actually practices Christian principles like in their workplace. It's like such a joy and like the the whole difference in how the, the environment is played out is way different. And when I look at this passage and these instructions towards wives, husbands, children, fathers, employees, employers, it's kind of, I realize how much work I have to do in my life. And it's intimidating. And it's like, how do I, how do I do this? I can't do this in my own strength. And Lord, I need your help. And so today as we take communion, like, I think the starting point of where we start pick up this, this uh, text next week, devote yourselves to prayer. And so we're, we're to be praying and seeking God and Lord, help us. And what is communion about? Communion is where we come back to the cross. Like, I, I almost kind of think that it's a communion, something we should probably do on a, a sort of a daily basis. Almost weekly, I joke that my friends, when I became a Christian, said, oh, well, that's good. You know, it's a good crush. You, you, did, you, you had some struggles with alcohol, so it'd be, you know, you need a little, a little crutch to get through life. I'm like, brother, I don't need a crutch. I need full-blown life support system. Like, I'm a mess. <laughs> and so when we look at the Lord's Supper, when we take communion, the scripture tells us that it's for three things. First, It's a time for us to kind of take some time to get right with God. If you're not a believer, if you haven't trusted in Christ, well, communion is not for you. The good news is, is if you have heard the gospel that Jesus loves you, that he came, lived the perfect life, that according to scriptures, he was nailed to the cross for your sin, that he was buried that he rose again on the third day, that he walked on this earth for 40 days, showing himself to people, and then he ascended into heaven. That being a Christian is simply believing in that, that you know your position before God and that you see that Jesus was your substitute on the cross, that when he bore those nails, it was for your sin, totally and completely. It's not about that Jesus bridged the gap 80% and then you have 20% to, to by good works that you've got to complete the task. The Bible makes it clear that our righteousness is but filthy rags before the Lord. And so as Christians, when we come to communion, we're reminded this little cracker. We're reminded of the body of Christ that was broken, that his brokenness was because of my sin. My guilt was placed upon him. And that he imputed his righteousness towards me, the the Jews, the new covenant, that we have life in him. And imputed is not a word that I use that often, or like outside of Christianese or seminary. Like, I don't know, do we use imputed in our day-to-day life? One of the stories I like telling is about my credit card issue. When some stranger graciously over the internet treated himself to an to a airline ticket from London to somewhere else in Europe, and there was like a two thousand dollar charge on my credit card, you know, my memory—it's kind of like I, I, like, did I buy a ticket? To Eng- I'm like, and did I buy a ticket, an airline ticket? Am I going somewhere that I forgot about? No, gutter, not to, not that you told me about. So I call my bank, and I say, you know, I'm real, I. Uh, I see that there's a charge on my credit card from Orbitz. 
And I, I, I talked to my wife, and I didn't buy this ticket. And they're like, okay, you're not going from London to wherever? I'm like, I wish I was, but I'm not. And uh, they said, okay, well, we'll refund you the, the $2,300 or whatever it was. We'll put it back into your account, and it'll be like it never happened. So that happened. It's wonderful. But then two weeks later, all of a sudden, I had a refund from Orbitz. Another $2,300 came in. And I was like, jackpot. This is $2,300 excess. And so then I'm like, "Ah, I better call the bank. It's just like the Christian thing to do. Like my conscience would be bugging me for a long time. So I call the bank and I say, I'm sorry, but you guys, I got a double deposit. Like you guys gave me $2,300 and Orbitz refunded $2,300. And the lady was like, I called the wrong department. She's like, ooh, that's complicated. Who do I have to transfer you to? But I got to transfer you to somebody. And I'm, I told her, I'm like, well, if this is a really big deal, I'll just deal with it. I mean, I, it's, it's, if it's going to be too much of a hassle for you guys, don't even worry about the paperwork. I'll take care of it. I, I can find a place to. And she's like, uh, no, that's not funny, sir. And I need, she transferred me. They took the money back. And, and uh, the, the reason I say this is because we have had our bank accounts filled with a whole lot more valuable stuff than money. Christ is without sin. And his righteousness has been deposited in our account so that in Christ, when you've believed upon Jesus for salvation, God no longer looks at your sin. Your sin was paid for on the cross by Jesus. What he sees in you is the perfect life of Christ, that we've been made his righteousness, that we have fellowship with him. And it's a wonderful thing. Our lives are transformed. We're made new. And this process, this renovation process begins to take place in the same chapter, Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, when it says, And you have put on a new self who is being renewed. That word renewed is renovation. Like that you're under a remodeling project by God to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who's created him. And after you become a Christian, doesn't mean that you're perfect. And so when we come to communion, we reflect We remember what Christ did for us on the cross. We confess sin that we have. We're told that he makes us new, that he purifies us. We remember what he did on the cross. And thirdly, what we're told to do, that as long as we take communion, we're to proclaim the Lord's death, that we're to tell the world about him. Because a day is coming when he will return and there'll be no more communion. And so what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song I'm going to pray, and you just take some time to reflect, to confess your sin, uh, to seek God for help. If you can't think of any sin to confess, there's always pride, because we all have sin to confess. To ask the Lord, Lord, show me what areas in my life have I, have I not let go to you? What areas have I compartmentalized? Lord, I need help as a husband, as a wife, as a, as a spouse, as whatever your situation. Help me in my workplace. And when you're ready, just come and get the, take your elements, go back to your seat, and then just take communion when you're ready. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word that reveals yourself to us. And Father, I pray for each person here today, Lord. Maybe there are some who haven't um, come to a place where they've um, come to know you as Savior. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would move in their heart. Lord, help them to connect the dots that they need to connect, that they would, um, Lord, if they have questions, that they would answer, they, they would be able to find those questions, that they would be able to, to reach out by faith and trust in you. And, Lord, for those of us who have trusted in you as Savior, we come to you asking for help, Lord. We thank you that these great doctrines about Christ in the first two chapters of Colossians, Lord, this teaching us who he is, Lord, that, that it actually does mean something that's supposed to play out in our lives. In the most intimate of all relationships within our, our, our marriage, within our families, in our workplace, Lord, that the gospel is to invade all of these areas. And Father, when I come to these passages, I realize... Lord, how much work there is to be done in my own life. And so, Father, as I take communion today, Lord, as I reflect upon your body that was broken, 
your blood that was shed for me. I thank you, Lord, that you conquered the grave. Father, that you reconciled me to you. I thank you that it's not based on works, that you did it all. And Father, as we take communion, we pray that you would bring to mind friends and family and co-workers, Lord, that maybe don't know you as Savior. Lord, give us the courage, give us the opportunity, help us to take the opportunities that you give to share Christ with those around us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.